Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, if we have not met, my name is Brian, and uh, along with the team here, I have the privilege of serving Light Church in downtown. Uh, welcome if you're visiting or new. Uh, it's a joy to be together on these summer days. So, um, yeah, welcome. What a pleasure. Hey, we, we've been in a series in the book of Ephesians, and uh, today we are heading towards wrapping up our series as we wrap up the entire letter of the book of Ephesians next Sunday. But uh, we've spent the last kind of good portion of the best part of the last two months uh, going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And today we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 6. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to verse 10, we're going to read a big chunk. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, all the way through to verse 21. And so you can follow along with me. Um, The scripture will be on the screen as well. Finally, Paul says... Finally, as we head towards the the end of this letter, finally be strengthened by the Lord and in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Let's end it there. We've been in this letter where Paul is writing to the church that he loves in a city called Ephesus. And today as we head towards wrapping up the series, we get to this kind of weighty, big, and oftentimes pretty popular uh, passage of Scripture where we talk about the full armor of God. But before we unpack that that passage this morning, let's just kind of give ourselves a bit of a framework to where we are right now and how we got here. Paul writes as a pastor and a church planter who loves this church in modern-day Turkey. And he writes this letter, a very pastoral letter, reminding the people in the church in Ephesus who they are in Christ. And he spends three chapters telling them their identity in Jesus. And then he goes on for the next three chapters, ending in chapter 6, telling them how they now live a life worthy of this calling of being a son or a daughter of the living God. And, and we can divide uh, Ephesians into these two chunks. We've said this many times, the first three chapters being our position in Jesus. And then the second three chapters being how do we practice our faith. A few weeks ago, Caitlin shared a message where she kind of took it one step further and spoke on how we 
uh, Ephesians can be divided into three separate portions. The first being sitting, the second being walking, and the third being standing, which can basically sum up the entire book of Ephesians. We sit first and foremost, as sons and daughters of a king rooted in our identity in Jesus. That's the first invitation, the first call of Pastor Paul. And then he tells us, okay, now that you know who you are, this is how you live. This is how you walk out your faith. This is how you live in light of who you now are in Christ. And we live a whole new life that is completely different to the culture of this world. And then he says, and we spoke of it today, stand. We stand rooted in our identity in Christ, immovable, unshaken. We stand when we face opposition. And we don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in, in uh, who I am and the abilities that, that I have or the, the strengths that I have. We stand in the victory of Jesus Christ and the victory that he's already won over for us. So today... Today we're going to talk about what does it mean to stand. How do we as Christians, disciples of Jesus, who live and follow him with all of our hearts, or at least desire to, knowing who we are rooted and founded in Christ, knowing how we should now walk, how do we stand when we face opposition? Well, Paul says our struggle, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And so our wrestling to live this life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a battle against other human beings. It involves human beings, absolutely. When we live out our faith, when we try to practice our faith as disciples of Jesus, we come into conflict, yes, at times with other human beings. But the struggle that we face in living out and practicing the way of Jesus with effectiveness and holiness and commitment to the Lord, our struggle is not finally against other human beings. Although that is oftentimes how it seems to either play out or what we give a lot of our attention to. Our struggle is against spiritual powers and authorities that are unseen in the world around us. Now, here's the thing. It kind of, again, the last two weeks, last week we spoke and gave some attention to Paul's uh, definition of what it means to be a slave. And today we get into this kind of chunky passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where he talks about spiritual evil powers and forces. And this is pretty uh, tempting, one, as a preacher and pastor, to kind of skip over this portion of Scripture and just encourage us to put on the, you know, the, the belt of truth and, and live out a great life and be holy and let's build community, which is all amazing and we must do that. But we need to come to terms and recognize who we fight against and what we are being saved from. The, the general secretary of the United Nations, his name, uh, past secretary, Utant, he expressed this bewilderment over the state of the human existence on this planet. And I quote, he says, what element is lacking so that with all of our skill and all of our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? 
What is the, it that inhabits, inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of the human experience? Why is it that for all our professed ideals, uh, our hopes and our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective, only, seen only dimly through the storms of turmoil of our present difficulties? Kind of just summing up for us, hey, life on this planet just seems to be so hard. We have all the ideals of what it means to live the good life, whether you're in the church or out the church. Everyone has a definition or a framework or a worldview of how we in humans should or could flourish together, but yet we seem to be so far off that as the human race. Why? Well, the answer, according to the Bible, is that there is more to this life and there is more to the reality of the present day than meets the eye on, on surface level. There is more there is another reality at play, and it's a spiritual reality of which, at times, we can come into conflict with and opposition against. So Paul says, finally. He's wrapping up his letter. He's getting to the last portion. And in this last kind of instruction and encouragement, Paul starts off by saying, finally. Now, this finally that Paul talks about, it's not, he's not talking about in conclusion, He's not saying, okay, now to wrap up and to end very pleasantly. He's actually, this word, if you were to translate finally from the original language that it was written in, it should be translated as henceforth, or meaning from now on. So Paul has got to this portion where he's saying, okay, this is who you are in Jesus, a beloved son and daughter of a king, adopted into the family of God. And he's saying, this is how you live out your life. Okay, in light of all of this, from now on, he says, we're going to find ourselves in a bit of a tension. We're going to find ourselves in a little bit of a struggle or a little bit of a battle for the rest of our lives. John Stott, he helps us to feel the impact of Paul's words where he says, from now on or finally. He says this, but now Paul brings us down to earth and to Reality is harsher than dreams. He reminds us of the opposition. Beneath the surface appearances of unseen spiritual battle is, is raging. He introduces us to the devil and to certain principalities and powers at, at his command. He supplies us with no biography of the devil and no account of the origin of the forces of darkness. He assumes their existence as common ground between himself and his readers. And I think that is so important. We kind of go through life only looking at what is here in the flesh and in the, the kind of tangible reality by not giving much attention to the spiritual. But Paul here assumes that the church in this day had this immediate understanding that there is a spiritual world at play. In any case, his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn us, or, uh, but to warn us of their hostility and teach us how to overcome them. Is God's plan to create a new society, then they will do their utmost to destroy. Has God through Jesus Christ broken down the walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil through his enemy, emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and sin. Is it these powers that we are able, that we are told to wage war or to be more precise, to wrestle? So Paul says, finally, 
be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. And so we have no other choice because here's the thing, we are no match for the opposition. We are no match, you and I, in our human strength and capabilities, we are no match for the real enemy of the gospel. Only Jesus Christ is strong enough to stand on his own. And so we are told to be strengthened by the Lord, or more literally, to grow strong in the Lord. This explains why we can be living our lives in light of this calling that we have received. We can be living a life worthy of the gospel call. And it can explain that while we are remaining holy or or pursuing holiness and remaining faithful to Jesus, why we can come against opposition like sickness or opposition like uh, going to work and, and finding ourselves in really kind of tricky situations where maybe we get laid off, you know, the turmoils of this day are not only controlled by human will, but actually there is another level of reality that is also at play, and it's a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality, to use John Stott's example here, that is coming to destroy that which Jesus has redeemed. So how do we grow strong in the Lord? How do you and I who desire to live out our faith, remaining faithful to Jesus Christ, pursuing lives of holiness and integrity, how do we walk out our faith and continue to grow strong in the Lord? Well, Paul tells us that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the evil schemes of the the enemy. We have to clothe ourselves with a different kind of armor because, get this, we are facing a different kind of opponent. So who is our opponent? Now, we realize how important God's armor is only when we begin to understand who our opponent really is. In verse 12, we are told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so what is Paul referring to here? Well, pastor and theologian Daryl Johnson, he says that Paul is referring to structures other than anything humans can conceive. And he goes on to say that Paul is referring to a non-material, non-human powers. The powers interact with the human, they influence the human, but the powers are other than human. Now, where are these powers? Well, Paul tells us that they are in heavenly places. We meet this phrase all through the letter of the book of Ephesians, as we've unpacked it over the last couple of weeks. We are told in chapter 1 that, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavens. There's this whole other reality that you and I are engaging and encountering and and that is at play within our fleshly reality. And we are told that Jesus Christ has blessed us in that reality. And so I just want to start off by saying while we're talking about spiritual forces and evil powers, we rule and reign victorious along with Jesus Christ in this heavenly reality as he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, in chapter one, Christ is seated where? In heavenly places. In chapter two, God has raised us up and seated us with Christ. Where? In the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. Where? In 
the heavenly places, we're told in chapter 3. And so these heavenly places, the spiritual reality that is in and all around us right now is another dimension of reality which interacts with the dimensions that me and you can see and touch and smell and hear. This heavenly place or this other reality is where Jesus Christ himself is. It's where we are somehow seated with Christ, which is kind of beyond our own ability to comprehend and understand And it's where the opponents of Christ are, and it's where and from where the opponents of Jesus Christ operates within this heavenly reality. Now, most of us live with a two-dimensional view of reality, things that we can see, touch, smell, and hear, this physical environment that we find ourselves in. But the Bible is written with an assumed four-dimensional reality at play. The four dimensions are the human self, the physical environment, the living God himself, and the heavenly places. We see the human self, me and you, who we are more glorious than the two-dimensional reading of our reality can even comprehend. That the Spirit of God dwells in us, the human self. There's the physical environment, which we know. Then there's the living God, who is more glorious than me and you could ever realize, and he operates in all these spaces. And then there is the heavenly places itself. There is this non-material, superhuman space, these powers and forces that exist, uh, influencing the human reality and the human experience more than you and I give attention to or sometimes even realize. And I think that that probably is the reason why, as modern Westerners, We don't like to engage with this spiritual reality. We like to engage with things that we can see, touch, smell, hear, and oftentimes control. But there is a spiritual reality at play that we need to give attention to because one, there is blessing in that place, but there is also an opposition in that place that is influencing the reality that we live and move in that is going to have an effect on our daily lives, whether we like it or not. And we need to be prepared with the gospel of truth so that we can stand against the spiritual forces that are at play so that we can also stand and allow the victory of Jesus to influence the spiritual reality so that we can see the results in our physical reality in our city today. So it's really important to note right off the bat because I know that if you're new to church or if you, this is a whole new concept, this can sound like kind of witchcrafty and weird and kind of out there. I just want to secure us for a moment and just say right off the bat that the spiritual powers were created. Spiritual powers are created. That's a really important fact to note. Because whatever these spiritual rulers and powers and forces are, they are created by God himself and originally intended to be created for God's purposes. Some obey God, some rebel. But it's important to note that these spiritual forces are not eternal beings And they are no match and they are by far nowhere near equal to God. They are spiritual powers. Angels or spiritual forces or powers were created to work with God and for God. And we see this all over the Bible. 
We read in a number of places of God meeting in a heavenly assembly, interacting with the angels. So their reality is true if we follow the storyline and the facts of Scripture. Sometimes these spiritual forces are called God. Sometimes they're called sons of God. Sometimes they're called the hosts of heaven. Sometimes they're called heavenly hosts. But there is a spiritual reality to which God interacts and, and moves in. And God has created angelic spiritual powers and forces to be part of his running of the universe. And so they have agency in this world. Some cooperate with him and some do not. Some of these spiritual powers will not surrender to the truth that they already know. So you need to understand this, that the spiritual powers, they know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know that and they believe that. They just don't submit to him. They know the gospel, but they will not surrender. So they do everything in their power to blind you and I as human beings to the truth about Jesus. And they use a number of means to get this job done. They hinder the progress of God's good news through seeds of doubt or creating a so-called way of living the good life outside of the blessing of God himself. We see this in our city today. They lead people who follow Jesus into a distracted reality so that we are distracted away from engaging with Jesus on a daily basis and living in the blessing that he provides. These spiritual forces lead people that Jesus rescues and has rescued back into the slavery of sin by not forcing us to sin, but hanging carrots of sin in our path to cause us to be distracted away from the Lord. They do everything in their power so that they can divide Jesus' followers in the church through different ideals and ideologies so that they can destroy the church. We see this in the global church and in the church in America today. where The church is being divided and giving their attention to small little details and being distracted away from Jesus Christ himself and his glory. This is the work of the spiritual forces at play. They want to ruin what Jesus has redeemed. And this is why, even though as disciples of Jesus, we are caught up in a battle, again, it's really important to note that we ourselves are not the point of the battle. We are in the battle, but we are not the point of the battle. It's really important that we identify who these spiritual forces are and what they're trying to do so that we can overcome them and live in the blessing of what Jesus has for us. Canadian psychiatrist John White, he put it best in his book called The Fight. He says his or Satan's supreme object is to hurt Christ and Christ's cause. His, you personally are of no interest to him. It is only as you relate to Christ that you assume significance in his eyes. Before you become a Christian, he was merely in interested, uh, sorry, mainly interested in blinding you to the truth of Christ or perhaps in seducing you further into his terrain. But this was not because of your personal importance. He only used you to get back to God. And I love that because that gives you and me safety and security that we are not the point of the fight. Jesus is, and Jesus has already won. So we do not have to take the battle personally. We do not have to live in fear of spiritual forces, but we do have to take this seriously. So just a few qualifying statements. 
just to uh, kind of help us live out Paul's uh, exhortation before we unpack the armor of God. First up, the powers of darkness and wickedness are not our only enemies. We cannot blame everything in this life on spiritual forces. There are human beings who some are just distracted, messed up, and there is a human will. This world is full of sin, and there is just stuff just happens, okay? So not everything is explained by like the enemy is attacking me because like I stubbed my toe on the way out of church, or like my kids had a fight on the way to church, so the enemy is trying to destroy my family so that we don't go to church. Maybe, but not everything is a spiritual battle. It's important to know that. Secondly, we humans are responsible for our own choices and actions. We cannot blame our own sin or bad choices on spiritual forces. Yes, sure, spiritual forces are intent in distracting us. Spiritual forces will hang carrots of sin in our path. And although we come under great pressure from these spiritual powers, we are still responsible for our own attitudes and behaviors. Caitlin uh, says this to my boys all the time. We've got two young boys, uh, five and seven, and, uh, you know, who did this? Or why did you do this, Caleb? Well, Judah made me do it. And Caitlin will say, no, Caleb, you are in charge of your own body. You make your own choices. And it's the same. The Lord would look at us and you're like, well, the enemy made me do it. No, Brian, you're in charge of your own body. You're responsible for your own actions and behaviors. Thirdly, the battle is not against equals. We noted this in the past. The devil is, is not God's equal. He and his powers are no match for God. And fourthly, the outcome of the battle has already been settled. Jesus wins. It's done. It's like match fixing at its finest. Jesus wins. He has already won on the cross and through the empty tomb. As uh, E. Stanley notes, he, he says, I don't work to the victory. I work from the victory to the victory. And so this settles the whole tone of the posture of the struggle. We're not in the struggle where we're like, who's going to win? And I hope we don't lose. And like, God help us because we don't want to like, lose out against these spiritual forces. No, we're in a battle, yes, but the, the match is fixed. The game is won. The final outcome is set. Jesus wins. So Paul simply calls us to stand. And this is why it's so easy to stand. And this is why Paul says, hey, he, he doesn't say, hey, go and achieve a victory on Jesus' behalf. He's saying, no, stand. And he uses this verb four times. He says, stand so that you will be able to stand firm. He says, so that you will be able to uh, resist, which is another form of uh, verb of stand. Uh, he says, and having done everything to stand firm. And then he says, stand firm, therefore, again. And the implication is that since Jesus has already won, we are just to hold this holy ground uh, that he has already won over for us. And we live in that reality. And so the exhortation is, stand firm on the ground that has already been taken and won over for you in your life and for all of humanity by the Savior and Redeemer of the world. But how? How do we stand firm? Well, he tells us to be strengthened by the Lord. Paul does not challenge us to pull up our bootstraps and, and get on with the good fight and like hopefully you guys win at the end. No, he exhorts us to be strengthened by the Lord himself, which is a really big difference. It's because the reality is we're not strong enough, as I've said already, to stand in and of ourselves. But when we stand strong in our weaknesses we th and we throw ourselves onto the Lord, we receive his strength for the battle. As Jesus said the night before he was going to the cross, he said, abide in me and I in you, and live life with me. And he goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. 
But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be strong in of ourselves. We simply put on, as Paul says, the full armor of God, which enables us to stand against the spiritual powers and forces at play. Not only does Jesus give us his strength for the struggle, he gives us the right equipment to battle in the struggle. See, because we battle with spiritual powers, it would be right to say that we need a spiritual armor. So he says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. This is how we stand. And this is the equipment that the Lord has given us. So where, where, where did Paul get this imagery from? Well, Paul is actually writing this letter from a prison cell. And so there's no doubt that he would have looked up and seen a Roman soldier guarding him at the entrance of the jail. And so Paul starts to name off the armor that this soldier is wearing in the order that the soldier would have put the armor on. Paul also gets the imagery from the Old Testament description of Jesus Christ himself, the coming Messiah, this warrior that Isaiah describes as coming to redeem and save humanity. Check this out, Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness will be a belt on his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And Isaiah 59, he put on righteousness as his body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is why Paul calls us to put on the armor of God. He's basically telling us again, which he's already done in Ephesians, to take up and put on the very armor that Isaiah says God himself will wear when he fights a spiritual battle. He's saying to us, hey, take up and put on Jesus Christ himself. Cover yourself in Jesus. Become like Jesus. And he says, put on the full armor of who Jesus is, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation the sword of the Spirit, and then he tells us to pray in the Spirit. So let's go through each one of these in turn. Firstly, the belt of truth. He says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Roman soldiers in Paul's day, they would have worn uh, skirts, like uh, very similar to like a Scottish uh, kilt. And uh, when they were about to enter battle, what they would do is they would gather up their tunic or this like skirt kind of attire, and they would pull it up around their waist and they would buckle a belt around it to hold it all together. And they would tuck their tunic under this belt and it would leave their legs unimpeded so that they could charge off into battle. And this is why Paul begins with this description of this particular piece of armor. He's saying, hey, we will not be able to stand against spiritual warfare until we have tucked around us the belt that holds everything that we believe about Christ together and that frees up my legs to move and carry out the gospel of peace, which is the next piece that he goes to. And this is the belt of truth. Paul is saying, hey, we stand by being gripped by the truth of Jesus Christ and, and by the truth that is Jesus Christ himself. We stand by letting Jesus shape our vision for our lives. We stand by seeing life from Jesus' perspective, knowing that there is an enemy in a spiritual battle. We stand by having the truth grab us at every level of our internal being. We stand when we live truthful lives sincerely and with integrity. We stand by committing ourselves to know the truth, to speak the truth, and 
to live out the truth in our daily existence. Stand, put the buckle of truth around your waist. Next, he moves on to the breastplate of righteousness. Now, a soldier's breastplate would uh, have covered, it would have been a piece of like really strong uh, metal, and it would have been worn over both the front and the back of their torso. And it guarded the most vital parts of their being, their heart, their lungs, and their stomach. We stand protected when we, as individuals and as a community, put on righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, protecting the most vital parts of ourselves, our souls. Now, what Paul does, what does he mean by this righteousness? He is saying, hey, we guard, or sorry, rather what guards us in the struggle and enables us to stand is twofold. First, we have been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we are becoming righteous new people with new attitudes and new behaviors. So he's saying, hey, we put on righteousness by saying to ourselves and to the enemy, I have been made right with God not on the basis of anything that I've done in and of my own life and myself, but based on the victory of what Jesus Christ has already done with his life for my life. There was great freedom in being able to say to the devil, the deceiver, the, the, the prince of lies, to say to him, hey, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are made righteous in Jesus Christ. The enemy loves to point out our sins to us. The enemy loves to point out our sins to other people. The enemy loves to accuse your conscience. He loves to suggest that because of our sin, God rejects us or we cannot be used by God or we're not good enough and attack our identity through the things that we have done wrong. He loves to just, you know, for us to think that if we can just work harder and try harder and be more holy and be more just, then maybe we can earn favor with God because by doing so, he takes away from us the need for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. The enemy loves to put seeds of doubt and lies into our heart and attack the very identity that Jesus has won over for us. And so Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, protect your soul, protect your mind, protect your heart by declaring I am in Jesus Christ and his righteousness is good enough to save and redeem me as a human being. I am acquitted. I am forgiven based on the victory and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then by grace, we go and live righteous lives. By grace, we seek to please God and live for his purposes. He then moves on to talk about gospel shoes. Stand firm, he says, your feet sandaled with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Friends, God has made peace with us in Jesus Christ. And when we experience that peace for ourselves, and we're, we start to stand on solid ground that cannot be moved. Have you ever come into contact with someone that when you're just in their presence, you just feel like a sense of peace? Maybe in the opposite, let me say, have you ever come into someone's presence and you just, when you're with them, just creates levels of anxiety? They're kind of like emotional vampires who just suck the life and joy out of every situation. By a little bit of a giggle, I'd say, yes, you probably encountered that. People that have been shaped and formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ bring about a spirit of peace. And there is also a security that comes with being in their presence. I've got a good friend of mine, um, I'll tell you who he is, and he's not here, and you all know him. So Benji, who leads our church, he's just the most like, one of the most Christ-like people I've ever come across. 
and I come into his presence, and I said this to a friend a few days ago, I was like, no matter what emotion I'm feeling, whether it's like anger, joy, frustration, anxiety, any positive or good emotion, when I spend time with Benji, I always leave feeling an element of peace, just a settledness of peace. And what that peace does is it roots me in just saying, hey, I have a greater security to encounter Jesus in this emotional state. People that have been shaped and formed by the gospel take on an element of peace that surpasses our understanding. And when we live in that space, we are rooted and we are unshaken. It's very difficult to shake somebody who has an inner posture of peace. Somebody, on the other hand, that has an inner posture of anxiety or fear or frustration, it's very easy to kind of let tempt them and let their emotions sway their actions. But when you're rooted in peace and the peace that is experienced in Jesus, the enemy will have very little room to operate. Satan is not threatened by soldiers who arrive on the scenes with weapons of destruction or anxiety or fear. But he trembles when he comes before soldiers who know who they are and they are rooted in the peace of the gospel and they announce the peace of the gospel to the rest of the world. The shield of faith. This kind of shield that Paul is referring to would have been made out of two layers, a layer of wood that would be covered by a thin layer of linen and then of leather. And it was a, a long oblong shield covering a soldier's entire body and was specifically designed to defend against arrows that would have been soaked in pit and then lit with fire. And the arrows would penetrate the leather and to some degree the wood, but what would happen is the leather would stifle out the flame and, and extinguish it. Jesus' enemy, is the, the devil, is bent on destroying all that Jesus creates and redeems. He shoots fiery darts at us all the time. And he shoots these fiery darts that uh, most of which the source, we're just unaware. Darts of lust, darts of hate, darts of judgment, darts of conflict, darts of just unhelpful thoughts, unhelpful emotions into our imagination, darts of accusation, darts of slander, darts of doubt in whether, you know, God is good or does God love me or am I accepted? But what extinguishes these flamey missiles is a shield of faith. Faith not just in a mental agreement in the truth, but faith as truth. See, Jesus tells us that even Satan's demons believe that God exists. Even Satan's demons would even agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's not only agreeing with the statement of faith. What, it, what extinguishes the fiery darts is trusting in that statement as truth in our lives. So not only believing it, but trusting it as truth. He then talks about the helmet of salvation. One commentator says, nothing short of an axe or a hammer could pierce this heavy helmet. This helmet protects our heads of salvation and the salvation that God accomplishes through Jesus. And so we stand. We stand firm against the powers by declaring to ourselves and to the powers and spiritual forces around us that in Jesus Christ I am saved. I am forgiven by God of grace. I, I am reconciled to the God of grace. I am adopted by God by grace. I am 
indwelt by the Spirit of God because of His grace. And in Jesus Christ, I am being saved. You see, the Spirit is at work in me. So I am saved and I'm continually being saved, transforming me into the image of Jesus as I am with Him and become like Him over time. The Spirit is cleansing me and washing me clean, making me a fit, holy dwelling place of His Spirit. The Spirit is using all the circumstances of my life to mold me into a new creation. I think you can already see that as we start going through this, that the full armor of God actually turns out to be Jesus Christ himself, as I've already said. So we are strong in Jesus. We take up and we put on Jesus. The belt of truth, that's Jesus himself. The breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, I put on Jesus. The gospel of peace, that characteristic of peace is what I stand and walk in. The shield of faith, faith in Jesus and the faith of Jesus ruling and reigning in my heart and the helmet of salvation, Jesus Christ himself. How appropriate is St. Patrick of Ireland when he said this beautiful poem that is now pretty famous. He said, I bind myself, so I bind unto myself the name the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one, the one in three, of whom all nature is created, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the Lord my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort me, and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. He then moves on to the sword of the spirit, not the sword of the flesh, not the sword of any human making, but a spiritual sword, the sword or the work of the spirit. And what is the sword? It's the word of God. When God speaks, friends, things happen. We see this on page one of the Bible. Let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks, things happen. Isaiah 55 says, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. The writer of Hebrews, he makes the same great claim. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Not a sword that's going to go in and slaughter enemies, but a sword that will pierce darkness and divide it amongst itself, a double-edged sword. God's word, friend, is, is able to penetrate any form of darkness, any form of bondage, any defenses that rise up against it. The word of God rules and reigns victorious. God's word is sufficient to break through any lies that the enemy might be speaking into your heart or your mind or your life. The, the God's word is able to bring us into the light and the victory and the freedom that Jesus won over for us. And that is why as disciples of Jesus, it is so important to be in the book. I read a quote a few years ago that just haunted me. 
and, and, and it's shaped how and why I do my ministry. It's, it's that I want to be a preacher at least, if anything, if what can be said about me in my last days is that he taught us how to read the Bible or he, or he taught us the word. And you see, I kind of went through the scriptures because I want to tell you this. There are so many Christians, and this is the quote, that live their lives according to a book that we just don't read. So many Christians live their lives against a book that they just don't read or haven't read. And it's why it's so important for us to get in the book. Whenever believers announce the good news of the, of the scriptures to other human beings, get this, we are announcing that same good news the principalities and powers as well. They hear it. When you and I claim the scriptures as truth, as truth and we say the scriptures with our words to other people, the spiritual, and we claim them as truth, the spiritual powers at play hear those same words and they tremble. This happens whenever and wherever we meet as disciples of Jesus and open the Bible, whether it be in a small group Bible study in your home, in our apartments, in our houses, in our offices. I, I see every Thursday, I love it. I drop my kids at school and I go to Monica because kind of, uh, Monica coffee shop, because I drop Judah and Caleb only starts school about 30 minutes later. And I go and we grab a coffee together. Caleb has a hot chocolate because no one wants that kid on caffeine. And, uh, and there's always this group of four girls. They're, they're sitting at the high top counter. I don't know who they are, but every Thursday I see them sitting there and they, they're reading the scriptures together. And as I was pondering through this message this week, I was like, you know what those girls are doing as they open the Bible every Thursday? The spiritual forces that are at play in downtown San Diego are hearing the truth of God and being defeated by God's word. We open the book. This is why the spiritual powers at play, you see, we see spiritual powers as this big, crazy, wild thing that are trying to ruin our lives. Yes, they are. Remember the point is Jesus. But they work so intently. One of their main objectives is just to keep you and I outside of the Bible. The spiritual powers at work, they, they, they fuel our busyness. Not even with sin, just busyness and distraction so that you and I don't open the book. The Bible on the shelf is of no threat to the spiritual authorities and powers. But an open Bible speaks the living word of God directly to the forces of darkness, piercing them as a double-edged sword and dividing them into a space of darkness and light. The spiritual authorities squirm when you and I root ourselves in God's word. This has been a pretty heady kind of informative thing, but I just pray that it will ignite knowledge and wisdom within us that we're at fight in a spiritual battle and that we take on these spiritual pieces of armor to stand firm in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so in closing today, and I'm gonna to invite Dave back up and we're gonna close out our time together. Paul invites us to pray at all times in the spirit. In the spirit reminds us, yeah, you can come up, we're gonna, we're gonna close soon. In the spirit, he reminds us that prayer, and this is fascinating because I've always kind of stopped as I've unpacked the spiritual armor or the armor of God at this sword of the spirits. One commentator, I think so appropriately includes praying in the spirit as a spiritual weapon, as a spiritual piece of armor, prayer. The spirit of God moves us to pray. 
He helps us to pray and He teaches us to pray and He empowers us to pray. How do we address the unseen powers and principalities? What is the most important piece of armor? I would argue it's to pray. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. That's what Paul tells us to do. And as we pray, something always happens. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in ways that are visible, but something always happens when we pray in the Spirit. New Testament scholar George Beasley Murray, he says when he's talking about Revelation, the final book of the Bible, and he talks about this scene where, where John has a vision of Jesus Christ, this warrior coming to win back all of humanity from the evil one. He says this, no one has was more aware than John of the limitations of what individual men and women can do to change the course of history and to bring the kingdom of heaven, particularly in the face of the cosmic forces against them and the transcendent character of the kingdom itself. But we can pray to him who has almighty power, and it would seem that God has willed that the prayers of his people should be part of the process by which the kingdom comes. The interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints is part of the ultimate mystery of existence. So we take up the sword of the Spirit and we pray in the Spirit and the powers and the principalities start to shift and change. Karl Barth, he famously says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorders of this world. And so we don't have to grit our teeth and start casting out demons we just clasp thy hands in prayer and an uprising occurs against the disorders of this world. And this is why the powers work so cleverly and consistently to keep you and I off our knees and to keep us from praying. Do you see how simple it is? Pray, read your Bible, spend time with Jesus and the spiritual forces of evil and darkness start to squirm because they know that they are already defeated. So we use the full armor. We, we stand firm. We take up and we put on the full armor of God. Check this out. There are five defensive pieces of armor. The belt of truth, spirit, uh, breastplate of righteousness, the, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And then there's two offensive pieces that you and I have to intentionally engage with. Engage with. We read the Bible sort of the spirit and we get on our knees and we pray and so it's just a simple invitation of Paul finally from now on do these things put on Jesus Christ as the defining character that protects you against these spiritual powers read your Bible and pray see how simple it is and the spiritual forces of evil and darkness that are here to destroy the glory that is due to Jesus Christ himself they squirm as they are defeated. So let's just do that. Let's just put Jesus Christ on. Let's read our Bibles and let's pray. So I'm going to invite you to stand today as we close. And we're just going to pray together if you're comfortable. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. It'll come up on the screen. And this is just the way Jesus taught us to pray. And I think if we can just give ourselves over to following and obeying Jesus, starting off by how and when we pray, that we will see ourselves start to engage with every spiritual blessing that is found in the heavenly places. So if you want to join me, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come.
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.